And I'm Scott. And we are Fired Up, Ready to Podcast. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode. We have a, uh, an announcement. We understand that there are segments of the podcast that you love that have were not covered last week, will not be covered this week, but we've got a crisis. Please understand, the state of Virginia, we have had multiple crises this week. So we're making lemonade out of this lemon, and we have a new segment that we're very excited about, about local politics. And we are apologizing right now for the length of this episode, but please understand, as we say, we've had a crisis in the state of Virginia. So let's go. And now, domestic Trump troubles. The New York Times reports, on North Korea and Iran, intelligence chiefs contradict Trump. In testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, linked to the annual Worldwide Threat Assessment Report, the chiefs tried to avoid directly questioning administration's policies. Yet they detailed a different ranking of the threats facing the United States, starting with cyber attacks and moving on to the endurance of the Islamic State and the capabilities of both North Korea and Iran. Dan Coates, the National Intelligence Director, told lawmakers that the Islamic State would continue, quote, to strike violence, unquote, in Syria. Just last month, Mr. Trump said, quote, we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them and beaten them badly, unquote. Mr. Trump has also said that, quote, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, unquote. Mr. Coates described his concerns in opposite terms. He cited, quote, some activity that is inconsistent with full denuclearization, unquote. The threat review declared, quote, we currently assess North Korea will seek to rain, retain weapons of mass destruction capability and is unlikely to completely give up its nuclear weapons and production capabilities, and that their leaders ultimately view nuclear weapons as critical to regime survival, unquote. One of Mr. Trump's key assertions that Iran had cheated on the spirit of the 2015 nuclear agreement was also disputed by Mr. Coates, who said Iran continued to comply with the deal even after the president announced in May that the U.S. would withdraw from it. The written review also found that Russia's ability to conduct cyber espionage and influence campaigns remains similar to its efforts in the 2016 American presidential election. But that now the bigger concern is that, quote, Moscow is now staging cyber attack assets to allow it to disrupt or damage U.S. civilian and military infrastructure during a crisis, unquote. <clears throat> I'm sorry, that takes a moment to really reflect on how frightening that is. 
Um, notably missing in the written review was evidence that would support building a wall on the southwestern border. That was not really mentioned at all in terms of a threat. According to the Washington Post, following the testimony, Trump lashed out at intelligence chiefs on Twitter, calling their assessments wrong, calling them passive and naive, and claiming they were ignorant about world affairs, and suggested that, quote, intelligence should go back to school, unquote. The next day, Mr. Trump said that the media had fabricated a conflict and that the officials were misquoted by the press after a public hearing that was carried live on television. He claimed the intelligence chiefs had told him their remarks had been taken out of context. Senator Mark Warner responded by saying, quote, The media didn't make the president wake up on Wednesday and trash the intelligence community on Twitter. This is the same president who stood on stage in Helsinki and told the world he believed Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence leaders, unquote. Well, what another chapter of embarrassment with this president who would rather make fun of his his intelligence uh, chiefs Mm -hmm. than say anything bad about King King Jong-un. Kim Jong Un <laughs> or Vladimir Putin, <clears throat> right? Uh, you know, it's it's really uh, unacceptable. And now, Trump troubles around the globe. Last Friday, February first, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the U.S. was giving Russia 180 days to come into compliance with the nuclear arms treaty signed by President Reagan. And if they didn't, the U.S. will consider the treaty null and void. Russia is known to be violating terms of the treaty by developing missiles capable of delivering nuclear warheads to destinations in Europe, including U.S. military bases. Unsurprisingly, U.S. allies agree with uh, the decision to ramp up pressure on Russia to comply. And this decision, which has been floated by the Trump administration since at least December, was not a surprise. What has been, if not surprising, certainly disappointing, however, to our allies, is the vacuum chamber in which this decision was made. Democratic representatives Elliot Engel of New York and Adam Smith of Washington State wrote for CNN that, quote, President Trump could have collaborated with our NATO allies to jointly pressure Russia from the start. Several allies proposed options to address the violation and ensure Russian compliance. Allies also told our offices that the Trump administration blocked NATO discussion regarding the INF Treaty and provided only the support, pardon me, and provided only the sparest information throughout the process. And now the U.S. is on the path to complete withdrawal unless Russia complies within 180 days. It was this type of unilateral decision-making that then-Secretary of Defense James Mattis called out in his infamous resignation letter, saying, quote, One core belief I have always held is that our strength as a nation is inextricably linked to the strength of our unique and comprehensive system of alliances and partnerships. While the U.S. remains the indispensable nation in the free, in the free world, 
we cannot protect our interests or serve that role effectively without maintaining strong alliances and showing respect to those allies, end quote. One suggestion the Allies offered to bring Russia into compliance was additional sanctions, but we know how the Donald feels about penalizing Russia with sanctions. The argument is made that, his, that the decision effectively ends the treaty, giving Russia the argument that it's the U.S. who's being the aggressor here for calling out Russia on charges it denies. Further, a post-treaty world would usher in a new arms race, and any arms the U.S. develops would need to be launched from bases in Europe, which those bases' host countries may not take a shine to. While the underlying argument is not contested, and in fact uh, Trump, the Trump administration's desire for a new treaty could involve more countries, notably China, which is laudable, the consensus on the left is that the administration's action essentially frees Russia from the constraints of the treaty without immediate recourse and leaves our allies in a more vulnerable position. Dear listeners, are you forlorn? Are you feeling like all the recent attention on the shutdown, the wall, the State of the Union, Rockstar Nancy, and the parade of Dems announcing their candidacy for president, do you feel like you just want to get back to your uncomfort zone of waking up and wondering what fresh mess the Donald has gotten himself, meaning us, into today? Well, fear not. The Cheeto-in-Chief has come up with a new out-of-left-field zinger that has allies, adversaries, and our very own Pentagon officials scratching their heads. Yesterday on Face the Nation, our leader, we fear, said about the U.S. military base in Iraq, quote, One of the reasons I want to keep it is because I want to be looking a little bit at Iran because Iran is a real problem, end quote. Well, darned if Donald doesn't know how to get the most out of a resource. Who else but a developer would have thought to suggest that our Middle East-based, established at the invitation of the Iraqi government for the express purpose of combating terrorism, specifically ISIS, could actually be used as a base to spy on the host country's Middle East neighbors? Quote, All I want to do is be able to watch. We have an unbelievable and expensive military base built in Iraq. It's perfectly situated for looking at all over different parts of the troubled Middle East rather than pulling up. End quote. What a stroke of brilliance. And I'll ask again, who else would have thought of that? No one. Certainly not the gobsmacked Iraqi government whose president uh, Bahram Salih said at a forum in Baghdad, according, according to CNN, don't overburden Iraq with your own issues. Not former Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who tweeted in part, quote, we are not proxies in conflicts outside the interests of our nation, end quote. Not a senior State Department official quoted by reporters saying, quote, our troops are there in a relationship with the government of Iraq by invitation of the government of Iraq, articulated by the Strategic Framework Agreement. They're there for the Enduring defeat of ISIS, that hasn't changed, end quote. A retired lieutenant general pointed out, we don't even have equipment there to conduct intelligence gathering on a strategic level. And a former deputy secretary of state said Trump's statement was, quote, probably the worst way to get the Iraqis to actually support us keeping some kind of presence in Iraq. Oh, Donald. Let's get local. Let's get local. 
our effort to bring more attention to state politics, we have our new segment that we're going to be working with. So what is happening in state politics this week? Delegate Kathy Tran put forth a bill that would allow abortions up to the point of delivery when the mother's life or health was at serious risk. It would also have changed from a woman needing three doctors signing off to one. Let me say before I continue, there have been zero third trimester abortions in the past three years in the state of Virginia. There have been a total of two in the state since the year 2000. Let's keep that in mind. Governor Ralph Northam was asked about this bill in an interview, and he said, the procedures are done in cases where there may be severe deformities. There may be a fetus that's not viable. So in this particular example, if a mother's in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Okay, and after that, Twitter erupted with the likes of Senator Marco Rubio saying, quote, I never thought I would see the day America had government officials who openly support legal infanticide, unquote. Let's be clear. Republicans tried to make it sound like Ralph Northam, a pediatrician who took an oath to do no harm, would resuscitate a baby, I guess a healthy baby, only to have a discussion whether they should then kill the baby. It's absurd. And I cannot believe that how this got all mixed around because of the Republicans wanting to use this as an issue. The problem really came when this delegate, Kathy Tran, was asked, so you mean you could have an abortion up until uh, the, the, the moment of delivery? And I guess she stupidly said yes or something. She was caught off guard. But this is the kind of situation we're talking about. We're not talking about you have a perfectly healthy child and you deliver it and then everyone goes, oh, did you want to abort that baby? Well, let's, you know, uh, yes. Okay, now we'll take it in the back and club it to death. No one's talking about that. But that's sure the way the Republicans made it sound. So Northam's office made clear the governor was talking about prognosis and medical treatment, not ending the life of a delivered baby. Uh, no woman, uh, this is the uh, spokeswoman for Northam who said, quote, no woman seeks a third trimester abortion except in the case of tragic or difficult circumstances such as a non-viable pregnancy or in the event of severe fetal abnormalities. And the governor's comments were limited to the actions physicians would take in the event that a woman in those circumstances went into labor, unquote. As you say, this is a story because of it's gotcha politics. Yeah. It's gotcha politics, which unfortunately works in too many corners of our society. Right. So now people really think that this is some kind of, you mean to tell me if a woman is going into labor, she can still have an abortion. Right. 
Again, making up some fantasy that this is going on all the time with healthy babies. And remember, please, what I said about how many abortions there have been in the third trimester in the state of Virginia. Right. This is a non-issue. This story is a real downer. The Washington Post reports, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam meets with cabinet and senior staff Ways resignation. The state capitol was thrown into tumult Monday as Virginia Governor Ralph Northam mulled his response to controversy over a racist photo in his 1984 medical school yearbook. While the man who would succeed him, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, denied a sexual assault allegation that appeared in a conservative website. In an emotional meeting with his cabinet Monday, Northam asked for time to clear his name. Some questioned how he could go forward effectively, but the majority said they were willing to stick with him. The same online publication, Big League Politics, released the picture of Northam as well as the story about the woman who said Justin Fairfax assaulted her in 2004. She had called the Washington Post in 2017, but they could not find any corroboration of her version or his that it was consensual and did not publish the story. Now, back to Northam. The picture in question is of someone in blackface standing next to someone dressed in a KKK hood and was posted under Ralph Northam's name in his medical school yearbook when he was 25 years old. Northam initially apologized Friday night for appearing in the photograph, but then reversed himself magically Saturday at a nationally televised news conference and insisted he was not in the photo. He also mentioned how he had used some shoe polish on his face on another occasion when he was dressing up as Michael Jackson for a dance contest. It was also revealed that he was given the nickname Coon Man, um, and that appeared in Northam's VMI yearbook. The best, maybe one of the best parts of the press conference was when Northam said, I vividly don't recall that that was me in the picture. Mm-hmm. Democratic Party leaders concerned that Northam will become, are concerned that Northam will become a liability for 2020 Democratic hopefuls and threatened Democratic control of an important swing state, have been unrelenting in their demands that he step aside, as has the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus. Now, I have much to say about this particular story. Um, First of all, I don't understand how he went from, he's sorry he was in the picture, to I now realize that's not me in the picture. I, I don't really understand that turnaround um, and then to excuse the fact that, that well, this picture of you in blackface wasn't you because you did blackface another time and didn't use a whole lot of shoe polish. That's right. That's right. Because That's as he said, you know, shoe polish is hard to get off. His tone uh, and his whole apology and then this backtracking really just did not seem to grasp the gravity of the situation. He almost seemed to try to be light about being Michael Jackson in blackface. It's hard for me to believe that I guess what he says was 
He never knew about the yearbook. But even if that is true, he certainly knew that he did dress in blackface and was called Coon Man. The other part of this story that bothers me is that if without my knowledge, somebody put a picture of two people that weren't me dressed like that under my name in a yearbook, everyone I know would have brought that to my attention, knowing that it would never be something I would have condoned. And it would have been a tremendous ordeal and I would have been outraged and taken action. So either no one around him find it so remarkably out of the norm to have seen this under his name and brought it to his attention, or he knew about this and he's lying. Yeah, it's not plausible that he did not know about that. It's not plausible. And and if it's just such a regular thing for, <clears throat> for that right. picture to have appeared, uh, then it's disgusting. And the thing that really bothers me, the blackface, uh, listen... That's, that is in no way okay. However, you're, whoever this is, is standing next to someone with a KKK uh, uniform on. on. Right. Hood on. Looking very official. And that is a terrorist organization. And that's not funny. And that is a symbol of hate and fear. And here's my big point. In this day and age, and this is why he's got to resign. In this day and age, when we have Trump and his racist nonsense, and we have white supremacists marching down the lawn of UVA shouting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us, we have got to stand strong against this kind of behavior and say it is not acceptable in the state of Virginia for this to go on. And that is why I feel very strongly about this. And if the African-American community is saying this is not acceptable, he needs to resign, then we need to stand behind them. To me, there's a stark issue here. You either support him who wants to not give up his career mm-hmm. uh, or you're going to stand behind the Democratic Party and stand behind the African-Americans who are calling for his resignation. And the thing that bothers me most about it is that the tone of his reaction to all this, it strikes me that he doesn't want to alienate his base. His career is done. So he needs to understand that it, it, it is time to stop thinking about your career and think about the state and think about the Democratic Party. Exactly. That's my point exactly. And he's not. And he's not. He's worried. As a matter of fact, he said today, he doesn't want to go out with people thinking he's a racist. Oh, for Pete's sake. Well, I'm sorry. That's not our problem at this point in time. We you, have bigger fish to fry. You've got more years to add on to your noted accomplishments and, and yes. the, the noted service that you've given to this state. You've not been a bad guy. Right. And you will be forgiven. But the longer you drag this out, the harder that's going to be. Right. And, and the more that this is a story in the newspaper bringing attention to all of this, rather than the stories that we should be focused on. Right. Um, you know, I, I think is a, is doing a real disservice to us. Yeah, it's it's a destructive distraction. And he had an opportunity because during the primaries, it came out that he voted for George W. Bush, not once, but twice. Right. And when I met him and asked him about that, he was very dismissive and just saying, oh, yeah, well, my wife has, you know, uh, brought me around to, to see differently. 
Well, you know what? That there was an opportunity there. You knew there were things in your past that were going to be off color at best. Right. Uh, and that was an opportunity to talk about your transformation in a way that really could have resonated with people. And I think people would have been more forgiving of him. Yeah. Okay, a couple of more things about state politics. The Republicans in the state legislature are systematically killing off serious energy policy bills in the House subcommittees without any serious discussion or debate. So if you care about the environment, you need to get out there and vote to turn over this state legislature in November. Also, a subcommittee of the House Privileges and Elections rejected the ERA legislation last week, voting along party lines. Republicans in the full committee later shot down the effort to bring the bill before the full committee. Opponents say the ERA is no longer needed because sex and gender discrimination is outlawed. Proponents say that women who bring discrimination suits must show not only that actions were discriminatory, but also that they were intentional, a standard that other groups do not have to meet. That is why it is so important to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, but again, that gets shot down for it looks like another year. So please remember these things. If these things matter to you, we need to get Democrats in that state legislature. Thank you. And now, introducing the candidates who will enter the ring to go whoop Trump's ass in 2020. Woo! So, Cory Booker has announced that he will be running for president in 2020. Cory Booker is an American politician, serving as the junior United States senator from New Jersey since 2013. He is the first African-American United States senator from New Jersey. He was previously the 36th mayor of Newark from 2006 to 2013. Uh, Corey prides himself on being the only senator who goes home to an inner-city, low-income community. He attended Stanford and Yale Law School and operated free legal clinics for low-income residents of New Haven. As mayor, his first term, he saw to the doubling of affordable housing under development and the reduction of the city budget deficit from $180 million to $73 million. As senator, he played a leading role in the push to pass the First Step Act, a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. He has been described as a liberal. He has the most pro-animal welfare voting record in the Senate. He supports a single-payer health care plan and has submitted a Medicare bill for all. So I'd like to play a little bit of his uh, video where he's announcing his candidacy so you can get a little bit of a feel for Corey and what he is trying to promote. I believe that we can build a country where no one is forgotten, no one is left behind. 
where parents can put food on the table, where there are good-paying jobs with good benefits in every neighborhood, where our criminal justice system keeps us safe instead of shuffling more children into cages and coffins, where we see the faces of our leaders on television and feel pride, not shame. It is not a matter of can we. It's a matter of do we have the collective will, the American will. I believe we do. Together, we will channel our common pain back into our common purpose. Together, America, we will rise. I'm Cory Booker, and I'm running for president of the United States of America. Very nice. I like what he has to say, and I like his rollout. Kristen Gillibrand is also a junior United States senator from neighboring New York and has been since January of 2009. She previously held the position of U.S. Representative for New York's 20th Congressional District from 2007 until her Senate appointment. And during her tenure, she was noted for voting against the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, commonly known as the bank bailout, as well as for supporting Medicare for all. During her Senate tenure, she's been outspoken on sexual assault in the military and sexual harassment, having strongly criticized President Bill Clinton and Senator Al Franken, both fellow Democrats, for sexual misconduct. She also supports paid family leave, a federal jobs guarantee, and rejecting campaign funds from corporate political action committees. She has shifted away from her previous more conservative positions on gun control and immigration and has called for the abolition and replacement of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. She announced an exploratory committee for her potential candidacy on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert in a tidy, brief statement perfect for inserting into this podcast. Well, I'm going to run for President of the United States because as a young mom, I'm going to fight for other people's kids as hard as I would fight for my own which is why I believe that healthcare should be a right and not a privilege. It's why I believe we should have better public schools for our kids because it shouldn't matter what block you grow up on. And I believe that anybody who wants to work hard enough should be able to get whatever job training they need to earn their way into the middle class. But you are never going to accomplish any of these things if you don't take on the systems of power that make all of that impossible, which is taking on institutional racism. It's taking on the corruption and greed in Washington, taking on the special interests that write legislation in the dead of night. And I know that I have the compassion, the courage, and the fearless determination to get that done. this week. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week and tell all your left-leaning but not very active friends about us. This has been a Common Production.